This week, Envision lenders react to recap transaction, reorganitiates coverage on cabinet works in Carvana, UCC and UST attack voting agreements in LATAM as illegal plan solicitations. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Belong will be joining me for the week in review. For this week's deep dive, we offer a replay of our March webinar, where the Reorg team discusses how companies facing mass tort liabilities, including Johnson & Johnson, have used the Texas two-step maneuver to box litigation claims in a new asset light subsidiary to use the tools available in Chapter 11 to settle those claims. Discussion also touches on the various potential issues these companies could face, including uncertainty regarding the viability of third-party releases. It's Friday, May 6th. Envision Healthcare late last Friday announced that certain of its subsidiaries entered into new senior secured first and second lien financing facilities. The new first lien credit facility in the aggregate amount of $1.3 billion consists of an initial $1.1 billion funding and a $200 million delayed draw term loan. Separately, the new second lien facility consists of loans in the aggregate amount of approximately $1.3 billion. The new first lien credit facility provides Envision with $1.1 billion in immediate incremental capital with up to $200 million in additional capital to invest in the business and pursue growth opportunities. Envision used proceeds from the new second lien facilities to consummate negotiated repurchases of approximately $1.5 billion in principal amount of its outstanding first lien term loan B due 2025 at a blended price equal to 66% of the applicable principal amount. $326 million in principal amount of its outstanding incremental term loans due 2025 at a price equal to 90% of the applicable principal amount and $87 million in principal amount of its senior unsecured notes at a price equal to 46% of the applicable principal amount. The new first and second lien debt instruments will allow Envision Healthcare to potentially complete further value accretive open market purchases of its existing debt in the future, thereby strengthening its capital structure. The new first lien credit facility also provides a level of stability through the uncertainty facing the healthcare industry, according to a release. Reorg provided a pro forma capital structure following the completion of the transactions, calculating that the recapitalization decreases consolidated net leverage to 12.4 times pro forma for the transaction from 13.6 times as of December 31st, 2021. The transaction, reliant on designating AmSurge as an unrestricted subsidiary, would result in that entity having gross leverage of 8.2 times and assuming no pre-transaction cash at the entity's net leverage of 4.4 times. Envision was able to redeem approximately $1.913 billion of total principal debt for approximately $1.321 billion of cash. On a consolidated basis, the company's cash interest burden increased by $45.6 million to $467.7 million. Reorganitiated coverage this week on Platinum Equity-owned Cabinet Works, the second largest manufacturer of cabinets in the U.S. The company, also known as AC Products, saw its unsecured notes crumble by over 20 points in April as it struggled with a surge in input and labor costs, according to sources. One of the company's main competitors, American Woodmark, had an almost 50% year-over-year decline in EBITDA in the nine months ended January 31st, as it warned of rapidly increasing raw material and logistics costs and also cited challenges related to the costs of labor. According to the company's management, price realization on average takes three to six months to fully offset inflationary cost pressures. To put the inflationary pressure in perspective, the company said that price increases, if fully passed through, would amount to $55 million in additional revenue per quarter. In other words, if the price increases were to match the cost increase, that would represent at least 10 to 15% of pricing pressure that American Woodmark had to combat. American Woodmark said it expected its announced price increases to outpace inflation by the end of April and into its new fiscal year that begins May 1st. 
Moody's on April 28th downgraded CabinetWorks corporate rating to B3 from B2 and its unsecured rating to CAA2 from CAA1. Moody's said the downgrade reflects our expectations of continued material freight and labor cost inflation over the next 12 months that will negatively impact CabinetWorks' profitability, adding that since the buyout, the company has underperformed relative to our initial expectations, resulting in significantly weaker credit metrics. According to Moody's, CabinetWorks' adjusted debt to LTM EBITDA has increased to 9.6 times as of December 31st, 2021, from 8.1 times shortly after its acquisition by Platinum Equity in the second quarter of 2021. However, the company still maintained availability under its revolving credit facility, according to Moody's. Reorg also this week initiated coverage on Carvana, an online used car retailer based in Phoenix, Arizona. The company's cash burn has accelerated in recent years despite rapid revenue growth as the company expanded capacity to fulfill higher volumes. Carvana's inability to leverage fixed costs was highlighted in its first quarter results, which were adversely affected by internal logistical challenges and industry-wide headwinds related to lower affordability, reduced consumer sentiment, and rapidly rising interest rates. To illustrate this point, despite a 2.4 times increase in the number of retail vehicles sold from 2019 through 2021, Reorg estimates retail core adjusted EBITDA per retail vehicle sold remaining roughly constant from negative 2,600 in 2019 to negative 2,700 in 2021. Management said on the company's first quarter earnings call that as a result of the internal and external challenges, previously guided financial targets for 2022 would be pushed back a few quarters before Carvana resumes its march toward its long-term financial targets. This not only delays Carvana's path to profitability, but also adds uncertainty regarding the viability of Carvana's business model. Carvana has relied on gains from the sale of loans originated to finance retail vehicle sales primarily through securitizations. While gains on loan sales have increased in recent years thanks to favorable market conditions, they are primarily driven by external factors such as interest rate movements and can fluctuate significantly from quarter to quarter as illustrated by a 44% sequential drop in the first quarter. To address some of its cost issues, the company announced the acquisition of Adessa's U.S. physical auction auction business for $2.2 billion in cash to be funded by debt, which would increase production capacity, improve Carvana's logistics network, and deepen its vertical integration. On Wednesday, the U.S. trustee filed a supplemental objection to LATAM Airlines' plan, again accusing the debtors of an improper post-petition campaign to procure votes in violation of the bankruptcy code. The U.S.T. reprised its early arguments that the debtors engaged in a legal plan solicitation prior to approval of their disclosure statement, pointing to at least 41 claim allowance agreements with creditors covering 75 separate claims. The U.S.T. also contends that because the illegally solicited creditors are Class 5 general and secured claimants, vote designation, the usual remedy, would only reward the debtor's misconduct. The most appropriate solution, according to the UST, is for the court to deny confirmation of LATAM's plan. The UST is not alone in asserting that the debtors inappropriately sought votes. The Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors' Objections similarly argues that the plan cannot be confirmed because the debtors solicited votes before disapproval because the debtors granted claim amounts to creditors in exchange for plan support. According to the UCC, the debtors' after-the-fact efforts to remedy any issues related to pre-DS approval voting agreements in exchange for claim allowance is a non-starter because the debtors, quote, knew what they were doing was wrong. Separately, on Wednesday, the debtors filed a revised version of their disclosure statement supplement stating they expect to receive commitments from holders of RCF claims representing at least $500 million of the $600 million of principal amount outstanding under the RCF credit agreement to elect Class 1A treatment under the plan and thereby provide RCF tranche exit loans. As a result, the debtors expect to have no more than $100 million of RCF tranche B exit loans pursuant to the Class 1B treatment. Top Red Stories this week included, spin-off two-step, could Bosch shed potential valiant securities fraud liability in Chapter 11 following Bosch Slom spin-off? 
Medley Management sues Lowenstein for malpractice in connection with subsidiaries Chapter 11. Says firm proposed unconfirmable plan ignored conflicts while intoxicated by prospect of estate counsel fees. If history is any guide, Envision's recap, AmSurge unsub designation could result in litigation followed by settlement, credit agreement tightening, non-pro rata term loan, par repayments. Hess Corp subsidiary Honks seeks to address asbestos liabilities in bankruptcy through Hess funding agreement. Hess commits up to $10 million to fund asbestos trust. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hi everyone, this is Kathy Ta from Los Angeles. Today is Friday, May 6th, and here's the forecast for next week. On Monday, May 9th, Eckhart County Energy will be in court for its second day hearing. The debtor faces stiff opposition from District Energy Business Marketing. Direct Energy has filed an omnibus objection to the debtor's cash collateral, bid procedures, and shared services motions. The Stonewood Capital debtors will be back in court next week on Tuesday, May 10th, for a continued confirmation hearing. Judge James Garrity conditionally confirmed the debtor's plan yesterday, but needed more time to review whether opt-out procedures rendered the plan's third-party releases consensual. This was an issue raised by the sole objecting party, the U.S. trustee. Also slated for Tuesday, May 10th, is oral argument before the Fifth Circuit in litigation coverage of the offshore drilling industry and the onshore E&P industry. The Biden administration is seeking to vacate the nationwide preliminary injunction issued by a District of Louisiana court barring implementation of the pause on new federal oil and natural gas lease sales. The Lime Tree Bay debtors will head to court on Wednesday, May 11th, for confirmation of their liquidating plan. The plan faces feasibility issues given that asserted administrative claims substantially exceed the plan's administrative claims cap of $4.8 million. Under the party's agreement resolving the UCC structured dismissal motion and resulting in this plan, the debtors are required to seek dismissal if the cap is exceeded. The SunGuard Availability Services debtors will also be in court on Wednesday, May 11th for final approval of two dip facilities. The facilities include a $50 million revolving facility to roll up pre-petition revolving obligations and a $285.9 million term facility with an approximate $95 million new money tranche. The debtors will also seek approval of sale procedures related to the sale scenario under the restructuring support agreement at the same time. On Friday, May 13th, the Altamipo debtors will be in court to confirm their plan of reorganization, which will be revised to reflect settlements resolving a number of disputes with creditors announced earlier this week. Debtors' counsel indicated the agreements would pave the way for a consensual plan confirmation hearing. Earnings will be reported by several companies next week. We will see results on Monday, May 9th from Smile Direct Club, Party City, AMC Entertainment, and National Cinemedia, followed on Tuesday, May 10th from Peloton, Scientific Games, and Lifetime Fitness. For all earnings dates and times, please see our weekly calendar. That's it for me as we head into this Mother's Day weekend. Have a great weekend celebrating the mothers and mother figures in your life and family. Now back to you in New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we offer a replay of our March webinar where the Reorg team discusses how companies facing mass tort liabilities, including Johnson & Johnson, have used a Texas two-step maneuver to box litigation claims in a new asset light subsidiary to use the tools available in Chapter 11 to settle those claims. Discussion also touched on the various potential issues these companies could face, including uncertainty regarding the viability of third-party releases. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on today's installment of the Reorg webinar series the Texas Two-Step, LTL, J&J Chapter 11, and likely future files. And today we'll discuss a topic that has gained national and legislative attention with the actions of Johnson & Johnson, the Texas Two-Step process. We'll explain how companies, particularly solvent companies, have used it to separate liabilities from the rest of the company assets and attempt to settle those claims in Chapter 11. I'm Mark Fisher, Director of Credit Research at Reorg, and joining me on today's webinar are my colleagues, legal analyst David Mayo and senior legal analyst Kevin Eckhart. 
Please note that if you'd like to access this webinar again, a replay will be available on the REORG webinars and podcast page later today for REORG subscribers. We will answer questions at the end, so please feel free to submit your questions at any time using the Q&A widget located on the bottom of your screen. With that, let's get started. Let's turn to the agenda, please. Kevin will kick us off by walking us through the two-step process, discussing advantages for companies and strategies. He'll also take us through the history before Johnson & Johnson and LTL. And my personal favorite, give us a list of companies that are currently facing MDL trials or are targets of litigation. David will discuss the current LTL cases and major events that have happened so far. And I'll finish the discussion by walking through another current chapter 11 and pose the question whether they should have done a two-step and examine the structures of another couple of pharmaceutical companies facing litigation. So Kevin, if you could kick us off, please. Uh, next slide, please. Um, as, as a way to begin, I think it makes sense to talk about uh, chapter 11 and mass torts, because what we're really talking about here with the Texas two-step case is a, an outgrowth or a branch off from what is the standard chapter 11 mass tort case. Um, and a variation. So it's it's good to go through exactly what mass tort chapter 11 cases are all about. Um, as most of you know, mass tort cases have become a big part of chapter 11 practice. Increasingly, we're seeing at least two or three big mass tort cases every year. Um, there are several reasons for this from the defendant's perspective. Um, one of them, and this is foreshadowing some of the discussion in the LTL opinion, which David will get into in a second, is that the alternative options for resolving mass tort cases um, efficiently and quickly have proven to be not up to the task of doing so. The first option is obviously the traditional Rule 23 class action. Um, the problem with using those in mass tort cases is that they're, they're often difficult to certify because the individual claimants have different facts. Um, in the asbestos context, there are different exposures. One person was exposed to asbestos while working uh, in a shipbuilding yard. One was exposed while installing installation. And they have different illnesses, different extent of illnesses. All of these things ruin um, the typicality requirements for class actions. Um, the other problem from the defendant's perspective is that class actions generally allow opt-outs. Uh, you can see this in the lawsuit that was filed against Bausch Health a few days ago um, by some of its investors. Bausch settled a class action for the Navient um, securities fraud case for about a billion dollars, but the opt-outs are still chasing it, and now they want $4 billion. And obviously, <laughs> that's not a, a good outcome from settling a class action case. Um, there are a couple of other uh, theories and mechanisms in the law that others have tried. There's the idea of a novel negotiation class action. Um, this is something that a lot of law professors have pushed um, and something that Judge Dan Polster approved in the opioid case. And how this works is there is an advance uh, uh, consent to a settlement agreement under certain parameters whereby all of the claimants involved in the case will agree to settle their claims and be bound by a 75% vote of the claimant body. Um, so it effectively creates a sort of plan classification in the class action. The settlement isn't known yet, but everybody agrees that if, so long as the settlement's within a certain range and 75% of the claimants approve it, they'll be bound by it. Uh, the problem is the Sixth Circuit rejected this approach and the opioids MDL case saying that it doesn't have any basis in Rule 23, 
So that settlement class concept got booted to the curb and it's yet to be um, validated by other courts. Although again, a big academic push on that. The remaining mechanism to try and solve these mass tort cases is the multi-district litigation system, um, whereby the judicial panel on multi-district litigation will send all of the federal actions uh, related to a particular tort. They'll, they'll have titles like INRI National Opiate Litigation to a district judge for pretrial proceedings. So to coordinate discovery, to coordinate settlement talks. Um, and then they will be, the, the courts will hold bellwether trials, uh, a single trial that is supposed to guide settlement discussions. The idea is if you litigate one trial, the jury comes out a certain way that could aid in the settlement process without having to do thousands of other trials. Of course, we've seen this doesn't generally work very well in the mass tort concept in the mass tort context anymore. In the opioid case, you've now had four or five different trials, a few bellwethers um, that have come up, and they've all gone in different directions. The jury in Ohio, a jury in a federal bellwether in Ohio found that the pharmacies were liable for creating an opioid public nuisance, a, a jury in New York state court agreed, jury, a judge in California state court disagreed and ruled for the defendants. Um, so you've got uh, decisions all over the place. You've got individual settlements of cases as they come up to trial, which prevent bellwethers from happening. It, it really hasn't shown to be a solution for mass torts. So right now, chapter 11 is really the best method to resolve mass tort cases. Um, there is the availability of the estimation proceeding um, under Section 502 of the Code, which allows the judge to hold a sort of mini trial without a jury to put a total dollar figure on the uh, debtor's total exposure to a particular mass tort. A good example of this was PG&E, where the fire claimants um, were subject to an estimation proceeding, went through discovery, and then settled their claim. Um, all in a much quicker period than would have been available in the jury system. Um, and, and that's effective generally in setting a dollar amount for the, for the purpose of a plan of your organization. Again, no jury involved there. Um, you can file a proposed plan that uses the estimation amount. Um, the, the debtor offers to pay that amount into a trust for the benefit of the, of the claimants. Non-debtor releases are granted to affiliates and management and co-defendants. Um, so there's there's that advantage as well. The trust creates a central place for all of the claims to be adjudicated. And most importantly, for the defendants, they can be adjudicated after it emerges from bankruptcy. Um, the bankruptcy process also creates official negotiating partners for the plan, official committees like the, the tort claimants committee in the PG&E case. Um, another important thing for defendants is that a majority vote of claimants in a class on a plan will bind the holdouts. So if the debtors offer... $1 billion to a class of tort claims and they get uh, they in exchange for releases and they get the accepting vote from those from a percentage of those tort claims under the code, different for asbestos and, and other things. But the basic idea is the other 33% who voted to reject or 10% or 20% are also bound by the settlement. They can opt out of non-debtor releases generally, um, but that's rarely done. And again, the non-debtor claims are, are uh, secondary to the claims against the debtor when you're talking about what the defendant's thinking. The other big advantage of Chapter 11 is it can bind, it can bind future claimants, um, not only people who have discovered they were injured by a defective product or that their house was already burned down by PG&E, 
um, but it can bind people who have been exposed to a defective product but have not yet become sick. What happens is the court will appoint a future claims representative as a fiduciary for that class and basically empower that person to act on behalf of a class that doesn't even know they have claims yet. And the bankruptcy plan can bind that class. So if someone gets sick three years after the bank, the company emerges from bankruptcy, their claim will be treated under the trust the same as someone who got sick before bankruptcy. Next slide. Um, so just stepping back, this is a list that we have assembled of large dollar MDL targets. And again, MDLs are a good place to start looking for big mass tort cases that might result in mass tort bankruptcies or their, their cousin, the Texas two-step that we're discussing today. These are generally large, diffuse, complex and, and difficult, expensive to prosecute and defend cases where the Texas two-step in chapter 11 might be valuable to the company um, in trying to resolve those liabilities quickly and not have them drag out. Um, the biggest one right now is and I'll just point out a couple of these. The biggest one right now is the combat arms earplug products litigation against 3M. 3M, excuse me, they, they acquired a company that made earplugs for soldiers that turned out to cause injuries. That one is in the tens of billions of dollars claimed. Um, if this were just a seminar on, uh, on Chapter 11 mass tort cases, we wouldn't be talking about them. But because of the two-step and what happened in LTL and what Johnson & Johnson has done, you have to consider any mass tort defendant in any of these big cases as a possible two-step filer. Because if Johnson & Johnson, with its credit rating and its years of history and its profitability, will do it, then just about anyone will. So 3M is up there. You have Walmart, CVS, Rite Aid, and Walgreens in the opioid litigation. Again, a jury has found them uh, liable for creating a public nuisance in some northern Ohio counties. Um, those aren't companies we'd normally be talking about, except maybe Rite Aid, but they have to be thinking about the Texas two-step strategy post-LTL. Of course, you also see some of the usual suspects up here. You got Endo and Teva are in that group, um, and you have some other, uh, some other troubled companies here. And those are, are companies that were probably already thinking about mass tort chapter 11 cases, but now are starting to look, um, and Mark will talk more about this, about the two-step form of the mass tort chapter 11 as a possible alternative. Um, so let's move on to the next slide. So the question is, why do you do a two-step instead of a mass of a, a standard mass tort chapter 11 case like Purdue or Mallinckrodt or what we typically see? Um, the, the, this all comes down to the disadvantages of putting a particular corporate entity into Chapter 11. There are substantial costs to that, you know, potentially hundreds of millions in attorney's fees and expenses for the debtors, for creditors committees, equity committees, tort claimants committees, and all those parties and investment bankers, of course. And there's also a, a huge time commitment. Uh, management will be distracted by this. They will have to be deposed. They will have to produce documents. Um, it, is, uh, it is very expensive, although maybe not as expensive as continuing defend, to defend these cases. And that's one of the decision inflection points here for, for any company that's considering this. Um, there is also the transparency required in Chapter 11, disclosure requirements, schedules, um, aggressive oversight by the United States Trustee's Office and official creditors committees who are entitled to basically open up the books. 
um, there's a lot going on there and, and a lot of more expense and time and distraction in, in that disclosure process as well. Most importantly, there's a lot of court approval required in Chapter 11 cases. Um, executive compensation is subject to approval in Chapter 11 cases. You see this, and uh, there were numerous objections to the Malincrod executives' uh, proposed compensation in that case. Uh, you have to get court approval for non-ordinary course transactions. And my favorite example of this is the Intelsat case when Intelsat acquired GoGo in flight. They filed a motion in the bankruptcy court to do an M&A transaction, which was the first time we'd seen it. But when you have um, companies that are close to solvency, that could be a big deal. If they are thinking of doing an acquisition or a spinoff, they're going to have to go to the court to try and get permission for that. If the entity that's being spun off or is spinning off is not put through the two-step and cleansed in the way we'll, we'll talk about in a second. Of course, there has to be approval for financing and use of cash collateral in the insolvent circumstance. This is usually a boon for creditors. This is something they want when you're talking about Johnson & Johnson or Walgreens or CVS or 3M, this is problematic because they will be able to get financing without all of those section um, 363 dip protections and all of the other things that, uh, that, that go along with your typical chapter 11 case financing approval. The debtors will have to get permission to pay off debt, um, permission for adequate protection, though often granted to make interest payments and to pay fees. Um, they'll have to get court permission to do dividends or stock buybacks. They'll have to get court permission to redeem debt during the bankruptcy case. Those are all non-ordinary course transactions that solvent companies, the 3Ms, the Johnson & Johnsons, tend to do outside of bankruptcy that they don't want to do inside of bankruptcy. Um, there's also the issue of assumption of executory contracts or leases. There is litigation exposure, exposure from Chapter 11, both for the company if there is a corporate transaction trying to spin off liabilities without using a two-step or, or with the two-step, and I'll get into that in a second, like the Tronox case where uh, Kerr McGee tried to send their liabilities off to a new entity and, and give it very few of the assets, there can be uh, fraudulent transfer exposure for that. In addition, the, the company may be put in the position of going after vendors, employees, just about anyone who's received a payment from them or having an official committee do that. And that's obviously disruptive to business. Um, there is also the issue of the valuation fight over whether the tort claimants or funded debt creditors get the uh, enterprise value of the company under a plan. This has been a big deal in Malincrot. Malincrot had and Mark will get more into this later, but it had a mixed corporate structure with a brand side of the business and a generic side of the business. Generics sold the opioids. They put the whole company into bankruptcy, and then they had to fight over whether the opioid claimants should get um, such a huge chunk of enterprise value compared to other kinds of claimants, e.g. the Axar claimants on the brand side. So these are all painful things that companies do not want to do. Um, and so they, do not, they choose not to go through Chapter 11 to get rid of their mass tort liabilities. Not huge problems, again, for your typical insolvent or close to insolvent mass tort debtor like Malincrot, like Purdue, that wants, or, or PG&E that wants to get rid of these uh, claims, but for a solvent company can be a huge um, reason why they don't want to go through the process. This is why non-debtor releases exist. And you know, you can we, we're not going to dwell too much on non-debtor releases and their validity, or on the on the pros and cons of uh, the two-step as a policy issue. But non-debtor releases exist 
to get people who don't want to go through this process releases and discharges without going through this process. The Sackler family did not want to have its members, Mortimer and any other family members, individually file for bankruptcy and go through this process of transparency, review, fraudulent transfer action. So they put Purdue in and are using non-debtor releases to cover them and get all the benefits of Chapter 11 without filing for bankruptcy. The trick of the Texas two-step, the primary reason why you'd want to do this is that it turns the entire operating enterprise into a non-debtor. It converts the company that sold the defective product along with maybe other products into the Sacklers um, and puts them outside of bankruptcy without having to go through any of these court approval processes, transparency or disclosure, um, and yet they get the discharge or releases and benefits. So let's move on to the next slide. So here's how the two-step works. Um, the reason it's Texas, nobody's really said um, Delaware has a similar statute. The Delaware statute does not allow the divisive or divisional, sometimes called merger, to circumvent um, contractual assignment provisions prior to when the statute was enacted in 2018. So if you have a contract with a non-assignment provision, you can't allocate that contract to what, what we'll call good co, the continuing operating entity that emerges from the merger. And that's a big deal. Texas is silent on that. And so most of these, these debtors have gone through Texas and have just assigned all of their contracts on the belief that it, it will affect, it will be an effective assignment. Um, so the way they do it is generally if there is an issue with funded debt, a default, or, or even an upcoming maturity, there will be an understanding between the operating company and its, and its secured and bondholders that they will keep paying and that the debt will be unaffected by the two-step process in the eventual 11. Um, generally, they, they go to the ratings agencies. Johnson & Johnson got an opinion from a ratings agency saying that the LTL filing would not affect its credit rating. The uh, old co, we'll call it, in the LTL case, Johnson & Johnson, Consumer Inc., um, will, and the, the good co, which will get all the assets, and the bad co, which will get all the liabilities, their boards will approve everything. Of course, there's shared board control, and this leads, can lead to litigation later, but everybody is on the same page. They approve everything. The operating company reincorporates in Texas, it files a plan of merger that allocates all of its liabilities to bad co and allocates all but a vast, almost all of its assets to, to good co. There will sometimes be a leftover bit of assets and we'll talk about that in a second. The big asset of bad co is a funding agreement. Um, that will be an agreement between bad co and good co whereby good co agrees to pay bad co's asbestos, opioids, Etc. liability. Um, it's only enforceable by bad co versus good co and not the individual creditors, which is an important, um, an important limitation. It often contains uh, limitations and conditions such as good co will only pay if bad co, um, if it approves of the plan whereby bad co has quantified its losses and it's making the deposit into the trust. Um, it will also include provisions specifically making clear that there is no effect on intercompany transactions might also be silent on that. This means that GoodCo, although it has this effectively a promissory note to BadCo to pay its mass tort liabilities that it's been allocated in the divisional merger, 
Um, it will continue to be able to upstream funds, make pay dividends, make payments on senior debt. That note that is represented by this, this conditional funding agreement is unsecured. So it will be behind all of Goodco's bonds, secured debt, um, and will not have superior claims to them. And of course, that's exactly, that's a key part of this structure that, that Goodco can continue operating in the ordinary course. Um, sometimes debtors, the Goodco will set up a qualified settlement fund, a portion of the promised, um, the promised uh, funding under the funding agreement as a sort of earnest money deposit. They also get tax benefits from that. Um, once the two-step is done and you have good co, bad co, allocated assets, liabilities, you have your funding agreement in place, you have your qualified settlement fund in place, the old code disappears. It is gone for good and is effectively eradicated, not just an empty shell, but no longer exists. The good co then reincorporates in Delaware or, or wherever it wants to reincorporate, but typically Delaware. And the bad co reincorporates in the jurisdiction where it will file for chapter 11. In all of the the cases to date, and we'll talk more about those, including LTL, these cases were filed in the Western District of North Carolina in Charlotte. So the, the bad co's, the future debtors, ended up filing in Charlotte. Um, there's a, the reason for this is good case law on motions to dismiss from the Fourth Circuit, where North Carolina is located, um, and prior good decisions on dismissal of these cases from that court because it's handled the first it handled the first three of the texas two-step cases um there is some non-debtor release decisions coming out of the fourth circuit Asina came out of, out of virginia so maybe the non-debtor release could be a problem in the future um there's also filing in north carolina also because of ltl creates transfer risk it's not clear whether they'll take another case so presumably uh Potential two-step debtors are thinking about other jurisdictions. Delaware seems like the most logical. There's good case law on non-debtor releases from the Mallinckrodt case most recently. And then there's good case law from New Jersey from LTL on dismissal. Um, Southern District of Texas, Southern District of New York, right now probably out of the running because of bad case law on non-debtor releases. I mentioned the Purdue decision in New York. The Fifth Circuit is generally tougher on non-debtor releases, and that affects Southern District of Texas. Um, so my money is on Delaware. I, I obviously can't predict, but that seems like the most logical jurisdiction for a lot of these. Next slide. So here is just a slide with the, the, the post two-step, pre-two-step org charts of the DVMP debtor. This was a, this, this was a company that was called, that was operating as CertainTeed, a Saint-Gobain uh, affiliate that underwent a Texas two-step and then filed the bad co DBMP while good co certain LLC went back to Delaware and continued operating. So this just gives you an idea for how the effect the, the two-step has on corporate structure. You go from a fairly simple um, ladder structure with 100% of the assets and asbestos liabilities at the same entity to two companies, one with 97% of the old assets and the other with all of the asbestos liabilities and a funding agreement from the good co. Next slide. So let's walk through the, the strategy. Once the case is filed, the chapter 11 is filed for the two-step debtor. Um, the debtors and the good co working together, and again, that's the continuing operating entity that emerged from the divisive merger and went back to Delaware. Um, they will generally follow or generally have followed in the cases today to pretty standard pattern. 
They seek an extension of the automatic stay or a litigation injunction to stop litigation versus non-debtor co-defendants and insurers. Same as in any mass tort chapter 11 case. The idea is to stop all of the litigation, put the claimants uh, on hold, get everything in the bankruptcy court and not go forward with jury trials, discovery, all of all of those issues. They will seek approval of the funding agreement as an executory contract. This has been fraught with difficulty in the DBMP uh, case that was that the approval of the funding agreement was not granted, but they still may continue asking for that. They say, you know, they want the court to bless the idea that this is an agreement between the, the debtors and good co to fund the bankruptcy case. They will seek appointment of a friendly future claims representative. I mentioned that there is a uh, there is a way to bind future claims in bankruptcy, and the way to do that is to get an FCR appointed to speak for future claimants. And it, it can be very beneficial, um, as seen in the Aldrich Pump case, to get an FCR on the side of the debtors and split the claimant body that way. And of course, if you can get a friendly FCR, there's nobody there to tell him not to cooperate with the debtors. His clients don't even exist yet. There are people who are exposed to the product and who don't know that they're going to get sick. Um, the, the debtors will then move on to file a plan with an acceptable settlement offer. In Aldrich Pump, this, they've reached this stage. The debtors, um, the, the debtors and their good co-funding agreement partner have offered $545 million. The debtors will also file at about the same time a motion to estimate their maximum exposure at the plan amount. So what happened in Aldrich Pump is the debtors file a plan. It says we're going to give $545 million, $125 million of that for current claimants represented by the uh, Asbestos Claimants Committee, which are adverse to the debtor, and $400 million plus to the, to the future claims representative who they got appointed over the objection of the ACC. So you can see where they're going with that. Then they filed the motion to estimate to set current claims at less than 125 million. They made the point that they just wanted a, a two-way motion to estimate. If it's more than 125 million, we'll have to rethink our strategy or provide more money. If it's less, we'll go right to confirmation because we're offering 125. If the total liabilities are less than that, the plan is confirmable because they're all paid in full. They will then try to set a claims bar date and establish strict proof of claim requirements and try to get something called a personal injury questionnaire or PIQ approved. The point here is to try to make filing a claim difficult and more uh, time consuming and burdensome for claimants. And therefore you trim down the claimant body for the purposes of the estimation proceeding. Let's move on to the next slide. So for the claimants who are reacting to this, um, and I, I, I'm certain that the very sophisticated mass tort bar is working on these strategies now ahead of time um, and getting more and more uh, strategic about preparing for these actions. First thing they do is they seek dismissal as a bad faith filing, say there's no reorganizational purpose. It's a litigation tactic. David will explain how well that went in LTL. They will oppose approval of the funding agreement and attack it. They'll say that the funding agreement is worthless because the debtor must in, the good bad co must enforce it against good co and will never do that because it's controlled by the same people as good co. So what value is it if if good co says we're just not going to pay if the liability is estimated at five billion? Who's to force bad co to sue? Um, they'll say that it's conditional on a plan the funder approves and and they'll point out that it does not present asset stripping of good co by ultimate parents 
through intercompany loans, upstream payments, dividends, all those things that we were talking about that are the whole point of keeping outside of bankruptcy and using the two-step strategy. Um, they will, the claimants will try to nominate a friendly future claims representative. That happened in the first couple of, uh, of Texas two-step cases. DBMP is a good example. The FCR and the, and the Asbestos Claims Committee are on the same page, support each other, have both been antagonists of the debtor and, uh, and certainteed the good co. So the, the claimants have that going for them. They will also oppose estimation as unnecessary, costly, and unworkable. This generally does not work. Bankruptcy courts generally will, at the very least, start the estimation process, and it will go for a long, long time. Then they will seek derivative standing to bring lawsuits to attack the Texas divisional merger. They will say that good co and bad co should be substantively, consolida substantively consolidated. That lawsuit has survived a motion to dismiss challenge in DBMP. Um, and emotions to dismiss are currently pending in Aldrich Pump. Those are both in front of Judge Whitley. Um, they will bring a fraudulent, they will want to bring a fraudulent transfer action to avoid the merger as a fraudulent transfer of all of the assets that were available to creditors of Badco to Goodco. And they will bring breach of fiduciary duty claims against the Badco and parent board members and advisors. In DBMP, they have sued all of St. Gobain's um, directors and officers for aiding and abetting breach of fiduciary duty, and they have sued Good Co and Bad Co's directors and officers for direct breach of fiduciary duty. Next slide. So my last contribution here is just sort of walk through using those steps, those strategy steps, how the pre-LTL two-step cases have gone. And there's been four. The first was Best Wall, which was a Georgia Pacific spinoff. That was in November 2017. Dismissal was denied in that case. The stay was extended, and it has now been in the estimation discovery process for years and years and years, which, of course, really benefits the company because this whole time they have not been spending money to defend and settle thousands of asbestos claims or going through trials with the risk of a judgment of liability from a jury. Um, so that one, sort of an early stage case, the two-step issues there didn't really get litigated as thoroughly as they have in later cases. In January 2020, I mentioned DBMT, CertainTeed, Saint-Gobain. They filed. Dismissal was denied. The stay was extended to stop litigation. So since January 2020, there's been no asbestos uh, jury trials or discovery outside of the bankruptcy court in that case. Um, judge in August of 2021, Judge Whitley issued a, a somewhat scathing opinion saying that he thought the funding agreement was essentially not a, not a binding agreement to fund a bankruptcy case, citing um, all these conditions and, and limitations that, we've, that I've been talking about. Um, he also said that he does not think the two-step statute prevents fraudulent transfer liability. And just as an aside, for many people, the two-step was seen as the, the first effect of the two-step was seen as preventing fraudulent transfer liability, Tronox style. Um, but it's pretty clear that the statute um, does not obviate creditor rights or fraudulent transfer claims. Um, that's been, that's in the legislative history. It's in the actual statute. Um, the District of D.C. has found that uh, Texas two-step does that not abrogate creditor rights. Um, so that's not, that the whole fraudulent transfer defense thing is, is probably a sideshow. The real benefits are, again, not turning the whole operating company into a non-debtor. There is a claimant-friendly FCR in that case. 
again, was joined the lawsuits and all of the challenges to what the debtor is doing. And what Judge Whitley did in that case was he split, he, he basically said, look, if you're not going to negotiate, I'm going to let the debtors proceed on estimation to put a cap on their liability. I'm going to let the committee and the foreign, the future claims representative pursue litigation to avoid the Texas divisional merger. And you could just litigate on those two tracks. If I'm going to let one of you have their litigation way, I have to let the other one. Um, the, the, in, the, in the aftermath of the LTL decision, the debtors in those cases, and again, the debtor, debtors in this, these cases are all represented by the same firm, um, and the committees are generally all represented by the same firm. They have filed a motion for reconsideration of, al- of allowing the, um, the committees and the claims to go forward with their litigation attacking the merger. Um, there are hearings coming up on both of those in Aldrich Pump tomorrow. So it'll be interesting, but it would take a pretty big reversal from Judge Whitley. Most likely that case and Aldrich Pump Murray Boiler, which is two debtors that were subsidiaries of Train Technologies, will proceed on that estimation and litigation track for some time, um, years and years and years. And again, all of those years will be years that the debtor is not paying out on these claims or paying to defend them. Um, and Aldrich Pump basically has gone the same as DVMP. I mentioned Judge Whitley entered a nasty decision in August in DVMP. A couple of weeks later, he issued one in Aldrich Pump. The difference is, as I mentioned, there is a plan in that case that greatly favors the future claims representative and the future claims representative, perhaps unsurprisingly, is friendly to the debtors and to, to the plan. There are also complaints filed in that case for substantive consolidation, fraudulent transfer, and there, there will most certainly be complaints against, uh, against officers and directors. So that's where we stood going into the LTL case. And that's where those cases stand right now. At this point, I'll hand it over to David and he can walk you through this, this very important case. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Um, so before we dive into the LTL case, I think it's important to take a quick look here at the, uh, the extent of the talc litigation faced by the company before the divisional merger, which ultimately happened in October 2021. Um, so these are uh, personal, personal injury lawsuits um, for ovarian cancer and mesothelioma alleged to have been caused by exposure to Johnson & Johnson uh, talc-based products, principally Johnson's baby powder. Uh, and these are just some of the, the headline numbers put out by the company to support the need for a filing and to illustrate the extent of the liabilities faced here and the cost uh, of the litigation. So we'll run through all of these numbers, but you'll see over 38,000 suits out there, uh, billions of dollars in asserted indemnification from uh, suppliers and retailers. Um, and then their, their numbers on just the cost to litigate these things leading up to the bankruptcy, actual costs, expected estimated costs going, for, going forward. Um, and then, you know, what they the jury verdicts is what they put out as like the really scary um, impact of, of doing this in the tort system. They kept calling it, I think Kevin used this phrase too, the LTL keeps calling it lottery-like results in the tort system where you get um, most plaintiffs getting nothing, but then you get a few getting these just huge blockbuster verdicts. Uh, and you'll see the ranges here uh, for single plaintiff jury awards, you know, going as high as $347 million in punitive damages. Uh, and then the real uh, blockbuster big ticket case uh, was the Ingham case, which is a Missouri uh, st- uh, state court case where um, 22 plaintiffs got joined, got combined into a single 
sued. I think they were all ovarian cancer and got a $4.7 billion verdict. Um, as you can see, almost all of that is punitive damages, uh, which was at the time, and I think still is the fifth largest personal injury verdict in US history. Um, so even though it was partially reversed on appeal and reduced down to two and a quarter, obviously that's not a, a judgment they wanted sitting out there. That's not a judgment they want to pay or have sitting out there as precedent. So they appealed it, uh, Johnson and Johnson and JJCI, the uh, consumer health business, appealed that as far as they could. Eventually, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court denies cert in June 2021, which LTL would cite in the bankruptcy cases a major turning point in their efforts to deal with this, to deal with these liabilities through litigation and kind of a, uh, a big um, pivot towards finding a, a, another solution, eventually the Texas two-step, the divisional merger in Texas two-step. Next slide, please. So October 2021 uh, is when they accomplished all this. So this is the Texas two-step, step one, divisional merger, step two, the filing. So October 12th is when they complete the divisional merger. And uh, it's exactly as Kevin laid it out. You know, there's a lot of intermediate steps to these transactions, but this is the, this is the end result. So old co, old JJCI, the consumer health business uh, ceases to exist. And then you get out of that LTL, who is Badco, gets all the talc liabilities um, and some assets, principal asset being its rights under the funding agreement. Um, and then you get this new JJCI entity, new JJCI is the um, is good co here who gets everything else. And part of that transaction is the funding agreement. So J&J um, &J and new JJCI are obligated to fund LTL in its bankruptcy case. Um, there are different funding obligations in and out of bankruptcy. Obviously, we were only out of bankruptcy for two days here. So here we only care about in bankruptcy. Um, and that's for Chapter 11 costs and then eventually a, uh, a tout claims trust under a plan. Uh, up to the full value of new JJCI is how they kept describing it. And you see $61 billion there. It came up in the dismissal trial that J&J um, had run a valuation analysis prior to the divisional merger, um, which pegged JJCI, the fair market value of JJCI's assets at about $61 billion. So that's the number everyone used as sort of the effective amount of uh, funding availability here. So then two days later, October 14th, filing in the Western District of North Carolina, where all those Texas two-step cases Kevin talked about are pending, uh, with the stated objective to globally resolve TAU claims. And here they came out and said it without subjecting the entire enterprise to a bankruptcy proceeding. Uh, and of course, they tout the funding agreement as the reason that no one needs to be concerned here. They've got the money. Um, LTL has the same, if not greater, ability to fund these claims as JJCI had prior to the divisional merger as a result of the funding agreement. So we can move to the next slide, please. Where uh, So here's the North Carolina. This is all the activity in the North Carolina uh, court. So there's a flurry of activity. The case ended up being there for about a month. Um, and LTL immediately uh, takes step one out of Kevin's Texas two-step playbook uh, and seeks an order uh, extending the automatic stay and or enjoining talc litigation against J&J, &J, other affiliates, and then retailers and insurers. Um, and the argument there was that these are the same claims um, for the, the claims against these protected parties is what they call them are the same claims for which LTL uh, assumed all liability in the divisional merger. So 
if you're going to let those claims go forward, there's no point in this bankruptcy. It's going to frustrate the entire purpose, was the argument there. Tau plaintiff lawyers uh, literally flooded the courtroom for those first several hearings. Um, I was there as a packed courtroom in North Carolina uh, and posed the injunction, arguing the opposite, that these are there's, there's really direct claims against J&J here. Sure, there are claims against LTL that, that you know, if you want to take this divisional merger seriously, they were claims against JJCI, those are claims against LTL. But in any event, J&J has direct liability and, you know, all, a bunch of these plaintiffs are asserting that in their litigations. Uh, so you can't extend the state of them. It's just it's not right. The other big thing that came up at the end of the first day hearing as uh, the judge raised the question of venue on his own question, whether this is really the right place, whether there are enough connections to North Carolina um, was pretty candid and saying that he's, you know, it's not a reason to transfer, but he, he is concerned about his court's docket and dealing with uh, these other two set cases. There's only two judges there. Uh, so he invited the parties to kind of consider this issue, let them know their thoughts. Uh, so almost immediately, the bankruptcy administrator in New Jersey, who's the equivalent of the U.S. trustee, uh, excuse me, in North Carolina, uh, has a bankruptcy administrator instead of, instead of a U.S. trustee, files a motion to transfer the case. Several TAL claimants follow suit. Um, and of course, LTL, LTL wants to stay in North Carolina, um, arguing for that court's Texas two-step expertise. So after about a month uh, and two to three weeks of litigation and several evidentiary hearings, the court issues a bench ruling. This is Judge Craig Whitley on November 10th. The first thing he does is transfer the case to New Jersey. Uh, but then at the same time, he issues this 60-day preliminary injunction um, so on the, on the transfer issue, he, he found he issued an opinion memorializing his bench ruling a couple of days later. And he said that LTL manufactured venue in North Carolina by incorporating there after the divisional merger. Um, I think they set up a bank account, but otherwise all the connections were in New Jersey. He said that's where J&J and JJCI are headquartered. That's where uh, J&J's TALC MDL is pending in New Jersey federal court. Um, so all the connections are there. So he transferred the case to New Jersey. And then uh, imposed the 60-day injunction. So uh, like as a practical matter, he may made this comment, the last thing I want to do is transfer this case on fire, meaning without an injunction in place, so just sending it to a new judge, uh, you know, in the middle of chaos. Um, and the Tau claimants would later argue in New Jersey that that's, that was really the only reason he extended the stay and imposed this injunction was an aid of transfer. But of course, as LTL argued, it's not all he did. He ruled on the merits as well. And he he bought LTL's argument that the claims against these protected parties are effectively uh, the same claims against the debtor, or he stayed those claims. And next slide. So right out of the gate, once we get to New Jersey, uh, three different sets of TAU claimants, uh, including the TAU Claimants Committee appointed in North Carolina, moved to dismiss the case as a bad faith filing. Um, they argue there's no valid reorganizational purpose, uh, pointing to you know the fact that LTL has no operations. Uh, it's only business, quote, business is to defend tout claims. So there's nothing to rehabilitate here. Also, no debt, uh, no, no real employees. Um, so there's nothing to rehabilitate here. It's not a valid reorganizational purpose. It's really about a litigation tactic. It's get, about getting a litigation advantage and preventing these tout claimants with state and federal court litigations from having their day in court. Uh, and it's all for the benefit of J&J. &J. Um, so this repeated throughout uh, 
throughout the case, this refrain is that J&J has a better credit rating than the United States of America. So it's unfair uh, to um, allow J&J, who can, you know, according to the tell claimants, can obviously afford to satisfy, just deal with this litigation, pay for the litigation, satisfy these tell claims. Uh, they can't get the benefit of filing the sub uh, for Chapter 11. Uh, related argument is that LTL is, has no financial distress. That's a requirement in the Third Circuit. You need to have you know, actually be a financially distressed debtor. Um, and then the major theme of all of this was that if you let a company like J&J do this, it's going to open the floodgates to all those other companies like the ones that uh, Kevin put in that MDL list to come in and do the same. Uh, LTL responds, uh, pointing to those, those numbers from my first slide. This is an enterprise threatening deluge of litigation and chapter 11 is the only option we have. Um, and it's a proper purpose. It's a mass tort case. Um, because of the funding agreement, they say there's no harm to tout claimants. Uh, but they also say it's better for tout claimants to do this in a fair, efficient way rather than the lottery-like results of the tort system. Move on to the next slide. So, uh, February 25th, Judge Michael Kaplan, the New Jersey judge, issues two decisions, one on dismissal, one on injunction. We're just going to focus on the dismissal one because that's uh, the, the really interesting one in terms of the Texas two-step. Um, and I think the key takeaway here is, you know, so he finds a valid purpose, you know, addressing mass store claims is a valid purpose in bankruptcy. He goes even further um, in saying that, uh, that it's better. Bankruptcy is a better venue for this than... Uh, than, than litigating in, in MDLs or in federal state court. It's faster, uh, more efficient, more fair, is, was his conclusion. As to financial distress, um, he found there is financial distress. And what's the important takeaway here is that he, you know, the Tau claimants had argued, how can you find financial distress for an entity that existed for two days before they filed? Uh, and the judge said, you know, he, he sided with the debtor and looked at old JJCI's distress and looked at the impact of litigation, the negative impact on an otherwise healthy business he was having. Um, and he, he declined to consider the funding agreement. He said, you know, just the, having the contractual right to compel funding uh, doesn't really change the dis distress LTL is facing. Uh, as to J&J's financial wherewithal and how that should be factored in, um, he said there's no legal duty there other than a alter ego or, you know, absent an alter ego or veil piercing finding. Uh, parent doesn't have to satisfy its subs claims. And then, you know, as to this idea that JJCI and or J&J should, should file for their own cases if they want to get any of the benefits, he said that would just be a waste. Um, it's ultimately, it's all about the tau claims anyway. And a larger, you know, filing the entire enterprise just ratchets up the costs and expense. And it's just not needed if it's all about the tau claimants at the end of the day was his conclusion. So next slide, please. So these are his, uh, J Judge Kaplan's more general comments on the Texas two-step. Um, you know, he said it's using this, this strategy, using this divisional merger statute and, in a way that, you know, complies with the statute. It's not inherently unlawful or improper. It's not so, so novel as the tau claimants are made, made it out to be. Um, you know, he said the attention this case is getting and the, the large outcry really seems to be because it's Johnson and Johnson. And, you know, that's really the new novel thing here. It's such a large company. Um, but he declined to, to take that into consideration under the facts. Um, we'll move a little quicker through some of these other found a neutral and, you know, the, the statutes meant to have a neutral impact. So there's no negative impact on tau claimants. And this quote in the middle here is, 
his response to this argument about opening the floodgates. You know, given all of his conclusions, he said maybe they should be opened. Um, and one of the big reasons that he relied on is he noted some practical limitations on companies' ability to use this. It's complex, it's expensive, requires a lot of legal and financial resources. You need to have a funding source like Johnson & Johnson to be able to do this. He's willing to pay for all of the claims. Um, and, you know, he looked back, it looked backward looking. Uh, he looked at asbestos filings since the first uh, Johns Manville in 1982 and says there have been less than 100. And so that's hardly a flood, he said. So um, all of the, the Taupin field this decision, they're asking for the bankruptcy court to send it straight to the Third Circuit. Those motions are getting uh, argued today. So that's really the next step to look out here, um, see what's going to happen on appeal and who's going who's gonna to consider that in the first instance. Um, and I will pass it off to Mark, talk about Malincroft. Thanks, David. Um, so in the interest of time and to get to everyone's questions, I'll move through these very, uh, very quickly. Um, purpose is just to bring up a company that faced litigation, filed for Chapter 11, but did not use the um, two-step process. So we could just ask ourselves, should they have used the, uh, the two-step process? Malincrot faced litigation on two fronts, opioids and, um, and Actar. Uh, the opioid settlement was actually done before the company filed for Chapter 11 um, on the uh, very simplified chart here, uh, bottom right. Um, all of the opioid business was concentrated in a couple of, uh, couple of entities separate from the rest of the, um, the, rest of the organization. Uh, and they were able to reach a settlement before entering Chapter 11. In fact, actually, the original plan uh, that they had was to file just those entities uh, separately. But facing ACTAR litigation, they chose to file the whole organization. Um, next slide, please. So this just uh, sort of summarized the business. They had, they had success um, fighting the ACTAR claims. Um, as you can see, claims um, you know, across the board for the general and secure claims. Um, there are other ones in here as well. Um, if you compare what the recovery was um, on, um, on these claims versus the claim size itself, uh, the company was, uh, the debtor seemed fairly successful. Uh, they won a lot of uh, rulings. Um, there were a lot of different um, plaintiffs and um, they, uh, they did very well um, against it, but uh, the business itself suffered. Uh, Kevin mentioned, um, you know, a lot of things that happened aside from just the cost of bankruptcy, but um, just management's awareness. Uh, but this this shows you what happened to the business itself. Um, of course, you know, this could be some of it could be coincidental, but um, the, uh, the overall business declined, revenue declined, EBITDA um, declined. And um, the question is, was this due to uh, at least in part to the bankruptcy itself? Um, the next few slides uh, just look at number, a couple other companies, Endo International, Teva Pharmaceuticals, both um, selling, uh, both facing opioid litigation. Um, here, uh, just a point here, if uh, these few slides, um, which are, you know, uh, Danielle, if you just want to show the next few slides, um, they're all showed. Um, then the purpose here is if it's confusing to look at and you can't follow it along, then I did my job because um, that's the idea here that the opioid uh, business are really sp um, spread out throughout the entire organization. Endo splits up uh, manufacturing, sales, um, uh, their uh, patents, all in different entities. Teva, um, they they uh, required opioids through uh, a few different acquisitions, uh, Cephalon, um, Octavis, uh, Ivox, and 
that stayed largely to this day. So along with the other drugs that were part of those companies, the opioids are really mixed in. So really intertwined throughout the entire business. And, um, and, and the question there is, would they benefit from um, pursuing a, a two-step process and uh, consolidating those opioid, um, those opioid claims? Um, so with that, uh, let's now, uh, that, that, that does conclude the prepare portion. Um, so let us uh, turn to questions. And um, we will see uh, what questions come in. Uh, please, as the slide says, please submit your questions using the Q&A widget at the bottom of your screen. At the bottom of your screen. Let's give it a couple of seconds, see what comes in. Um, just the uh, first one, uh, I want to um, ask Kevin, um, a, something that you mentioned earlier, uh, there's a question, if you could explain again, the um, FCR uh, benefit, choosing a, um, a friendly FCR, what exactly does that mean? How does that benefit the, the debtor? Yeah, the, the, the way it works is, again, a lot of companies, especially, especially in products liability circumstances, will have manufactured a defective product. Someone will have used it. Let's say it's baby powder. Um, they will have used it years ago, but the, the illness will not manifest for a long time. Um, if that person is not ill by the time the bankruptcy is filed, they're not going to file a proof of claim. They're not going to get notice of the bankruptcy. They're not going to get discharged. So the claim could be brought later. The way to, to avoid that is to get a future claims representative appointed by the bankruptcy court, and they will act as the voice of that body of creditors, basically a one-person UCC for creditors who don't know they're going to be injured yet. And you can provide for those creditors through the FCR under the plan and discharge those claims. Um, you can't do that anywhere outside of bankruptcy. Generally, outside of bankruptcy, you have to wait for people to sue you or to assert claims, um, but you can get rid of those claims using the FCR process. Um, so that's very highly beneficial in, in a lot of these long tail tort situations. Thanks. And there's um, there are a few questions. Let me, let me try and combine them on uh, claims estimation the process. Um, how does the claims estimation process work? Um, you know, is one of the questions. But um, you know, we also have when will courts start acknowledging class proof of claims? Um, who uh, who makes those decisions? And if you could just discuss the, uh, yeah, the claims process. By the way, just for everyone's information, we have been told that Judge Kaplan has certified the motion to dismiss order to the Third Circuit. That hearing is ongoing right now. So, David, uh, there you go. You can get started on the story. Um, on the, on the, the claims process in bankruptcy is, you know, and, and you get into the questionnaire and all this, people have to file their own proofs of claim um, and, and ask for recovery. And there is a distinction between those individual proofs of claim and the debtor's whole liability to all of the claimants. Those individual proofs of claim, even in bankruptcy court, have to be treated like little lawsuits. And theoretically, the claimants can ask for, if the debtor objects to their claim, says, you never bought our, our baby powder, they can ask for a jury, ask for that to be pulled to the district court, all of the usual protections apply. The estimation proceeding is a bankruptcy-specific proceeding that only looks at the total amount of the liabilities often using things like statistical sampling, um, things that are well known in the asbestos context, but also in other cases. You know, in, in PG&E, they, um, PG they got an estimation proceeding together, and it, it's generally going to be decided by the bankruptcy judge. It can get removed to the district court. 
Um, like in PG&E, the district court judge Donato withdrew the reference from Judge Montali. Um, the class claims almost never happen um, because bankruptcy judges hate class proofs of claim. I think the question is, when will they start approving them? The answer is the 39th of never, you airy. It is the, the way bankruptcy judges feel is that the claims process itself in bankruptcy is a substitute for a class action because theoretically it's easier. It's, you, it's just like filing a proof of claim in a class action. You file a proof of claim in bankruptcy, it's the same. So they really, really hate class action. So usually you have estimation for the total amount of the debt for plan confirmation purposes, and you have individual claims in the two-step mass toward 11, the individual claims are left to later. The trust worries about them. The debtor doesn't care because it's already emerged and gone. Right now, PG&E does not care what happens to those individual fire claims because it's already just dumped the money in a trust and walked away. Thanks. And uh, David, to help you prepare for that story or uh, to give everybody on the call first crack, uh, can you um, just explain to us um, what, what, what happened here, the certification um, order on the motion dismissed to the Third Circuit? Yeah, so the tell claimants were asking to asking the bankruptcy judge to certify the appeals directly to the Third Circuit, meaning bypass the district court, which is where the appeal would go in the first instance. And the debtor wanted to uh, debtor oppose that. So what Judge Kaplan just did, it looks like about 30 minutes ago, is granted those motions, meaning Third Circuit will hear the dismissal appeals um, straight away without needing to go through the district court first. Thank you. And um, uh, for both you guys, on third-party releases comes up in you know a number of these cases. Uh, is that always part of this process, or is there a way to separate it from the uh, the, the two-step in the filing process? No, <laughs> the third-party release and the 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 litigation injunction at the beginning of the case. Basically, what happens is they get the litigation injunction. It goes to confirmation effective date, then it just becomes the non-debtor release. Um, that's an essential part. As, as David pointed out in LTL, they said, if you're not going to grant this injunction, we're just going to dismiss the case or walk away. There's no case without that or without the non-debtor releases. Because if only the debtor gets a release, you're only talking about, about bad co. So if LTL gets a release, it would be called a discharge. That's the debtor's release. Then people could still go out and sue new JJCI, Johnson & Johnson, Inc., and officers and directors and all that. There'd be no point in that. The whole point is to get the non-debtor releases for these parties without putting them through bankruptcy. Thanks. Um, David, um, why, why did LTL originally file in, in North Carolina? Uh, I think Kevin briefly touched on this. It really had a lot to do with the... Um, dismissal standard. The North Car uh, Fourth Circuit has a, a much stricter standard uh, for dismissal. You have to prove it's on the, the burden is on the movements, really, to show subjective bad faith. Third Circuit, it, it's a little easier to get a case kicked out. The burden is on the debtor to show good faith. Um, so that's a big part of why they why they filed in North Carolina. Also, just the, the court's expertise in handling these two-step cases. Thank you. Um, so we have a bunch of questions. So I'm going to keep going here. I know it's one o'clock. Um, you know, of course, this is being recorded. Uh, so if you have to go, please um, jump off. But uh, let's continue to uh, to go. Um, Kevin, on um, you mentioned briefly fraudulent uh, transfers. Uh, the Johnson and Johnson uh, they 
in, in doing their merger, they uh, funded um, LTL with a considerable amount of cash and, and assets. How, how should then um, we think about stress companies that don't have the cash or assets? Uh, you know, you mentioned Endo, uh, you know, for instance, Rite Aid, right? Are there other stress companies that might be a little bit limited in liquidity? How do they approach this? Um, and does, does the fraudulent transfer issue potentially come up if they don't fund the... Um, uh, from those yeah, they, I mean, they can do that. All they have to do is, I think that the, the base requirement, and again, there's not a lot of case law on this, but from what we've seen, the, the important thing is the funding agreement. And that's a note. So if Rite Aid wants to take Rite Aid pharmacies, I think it's Rite Aid of Maryland, I can't remember the exact entity that oversees pharmacy business, put it through a Texas divisional merger, reincorporate, it in tech, reincorporate Old Co. in Texas, split it into two companies, Old Co. disappears, they could send all those liabilities over to Rite Aid Opioid Claims LLC and issue the funding agreement with new Rite Aid Pharmacies LLC. That doesn't cost them anything. It's an unsecured claim. Now, where you're talking about the funding that goes in is payment of bankruptcy expenses. Well, you know, that's not a huge amount of money. And then you have this qualified settlement fund which is, again, a sort of earnest money deposit and a tax benefit for Goodco, where it, it says, I have agreed to fund uh, $5 billion worth of liabilities at Rite Aid, Opioid, LLC. Um, they don't actually have to pay the $5 billion now. They could try to put down $500 million as an earnest money, or they could try to go naked and see if the court will accept just the funding agreement. Um, the LTL decision, you could interpret it as saying that the funding agreement is what's important and not the down payment. And in that case, what they could do is it would be an unsecured note and the secured creditors of new Rite Aid Pharmacy LLC could just issue them some new debt to water it down or issue them some new secured debt and, and, um, and encumber all the assets. And since the, the bad code that has the funding agreement is not a secured credit, there's nothing they can do about it. Thanks. Um, so while I did want to go a little bit longer, I see I am being pulled off stage. So um, with that, um, we uh, we will conclude um, the um, uh, we will conclude the, uh, the the presentation and the and the question um, session. Um, I want to thank everybody, Kevin, David, um, I, I you know everyone that part, everyone that uh, dialed in and listened. I hope you found that as informative as, as I did. Thank you, everybody. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.